0: Healthcare Today is produced and paid for it by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to wdev at radiovermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residents, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well, Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com. employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. Our topic today is pathology and the essential work that pathologists do in the hospital and in community medicine. The general public may have some misconceptions, believing that pathologists spend most of their time doing autopsies or maybe running around like Quincy M.D. solving murder mysteries. In fact, pathologists have a critical role in diagnosis of illness, guiding subsequent treatment, and in research and developing cures, we are fortunate today to have a very experienced pathologist on the phone with us from Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Michael Kornstein. Dr. Kornstein graduated from college at Syracuse, at excuse me, Cornell University in Ithaca. He did his graduated from medical school at State University of New York upstate in Syracuse, New York. He uh, subsequently did an internship in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and did his residency in pathology and laboratory medicine at the same facility at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and did a subsequent fellowship year in surgical pathology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Kornstein, welcome.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Well, I mentioned up, up top that um, pathologists... Do more than what the public is aware of uh, and I, I do want to uh, l- our listeners know that I often ask our guests what led them into their particular field of medicine so I might ask you today what when and and why did you end up going into pathology
2: well in medical school I liked uh, pathology the study which is basically the study of disease it's a long course in the Usually in the second year of medical school, and also I thought pathology would offer me the opportunities to do research that other specialties um, would have um, would have less opportunities. So um, after I did an internship in pediatrics, I went over to the pathology department and um, inquired, and it worked out to change. Um, my residency into pathology, and I was happy with it for 30 years or so.
1: We And you do still have some contact with patients in pathology. It's obviously less than in in the more other specialties in clinical medicine, but uh, were you able to see patients in person at times?
2: Um, Rarely. Pathologists are usually the invisible person in the medical team that patients don't know or see or have any contact with. Um, it varies in institutions um, whether pathologists see patients. Um, it often involves uh, doing biopsies, for example, um, aspiration cytology where you put a needle into a palpable mass. Um, and then look at what you get out of the, as the needle. Um, so pathologists often do that procedure, and sometimes pathologists do other biopsies as well. Um, but, but generally, pathologists don't have much contact with patients.
1: Well, they're invisible but critical, and we're going to talk about some of the ways in which pathologists uh, perform critical functions for medicine Let's start though by talking about autopsies. I mentioned that, that many people sort of associate pathologists with autopsies, but in fact that's a fairly infrequent, um, uh, focus for pathologists, um, maybe even less than it, than it was in decades past. Um, tell us about autopsies, why they're important.
2: Well, these are also,
1: by the way, called postmortems in the, in the medical field. Right.
2: Um, it depends on what specialty you are in terms of how many, how often you do an autopsy as a pathologist. As you said, the forensic pathologist, uh, the medical examiner, um, basically all all that he or she does is is autopsy uh, examinations, as you see on television. Um, the hospital pathologist, um, especially in the community hospital setting, would rarely do autopsies. And most of the autopsies that are done, quite frankly, don't show anything. Um, It's rare to find anything significant that's unexpected on an autopsy, given the extent of workup that patients now have, given the the radiographic, the imaging studies that are are available and so forth. Um, But once in a while you get a surprise at an autopsy, um, but most of the time
1: not. That's an interesting point that some of our uh, imaging studies have gotten so sensitive and precise that uh, the surprises that you might find after uh, in a postmortem are, are less. Can you tell us about some, uh, maybe two or three instances that you can remember when you did find something that had been unexpected when the patient was alive?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I averaged maybe one or two autopsies a year, so it was not a frequent. Um, uh, experience, but a couple of times, for, for example, post-surgery, finding a hepatic abscess or a bunch of pus, an infection uh, in the liver uh, would explain the patient's demise or in another situation um, during a, a medical procedure that was just beginning where you can do a, um, put in an, a valve, a heart valve, uh, percutaneously without going to surgery Uh, by inserting a catheter uh, through the vascular system into the heart. The first one that was done, the uh, valve was misplaced and and put in a position that occluded the blood supply to the heart, and the patient uh, had a consequent demise because of that. So there are surprises, um, but most of the time, the autopsy is not of value. And I might also mention, particularly in the Community setting that there's often a charge uh, to the family for an autopsy.
1: Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because one of the, uh, the recurring motifs in medical school was that uh, we don't recommend or, or refer uh, patients for autopsy uh, often enough that it's that it's uh, still a critical uh, part of the medical uh, spectrum, uh, and yet the fact is that unless it's a medical examiner's case. Uh, or unless there's some real concern about the uh, um, possible mistakes that had been made that uh, it is the cost does come back to patients, and it's very significant cost, is it not?
2: Um, yeah, several thousand dollars. Um, if the um, attending physician uh, has a reason to to request an autopsy, something very unusual, for example, or something where the diagnosis is not clear. Um, then generally there's no charge. The hospital system would um, pay for the autopsy. Um, But if the family requests it, um, there's usually a charge for it.
1: Have you seen situations where it did help family members to understand or cope with the loss?
2: Well, yeah. For example, the the case I mentioned of a postoperative abscess explains why the patient died and the family has some consolation from that, um, if you find something significant that explains why the patient dies, then that can be significant for the family.
1: I've also seen situations where at autopsy it was found that the patient had um, extensive uh, sort of covert cancers uh, that had not necessarily been discovered or we were aware of. and that, And sometimes that helps the family because they understand that no matter what was going to be done while the, while the person was alive, that the, the outcome was sort of writ, already written in that regard. And, and I've seen that to be of some consolation.
2: Right. And it also helps the physician learn, you know, for subsequent patients for what to look for.
1: Yeah, tell me, let's talk about that for a minute. How does it, how do postmortems still help the medical profession?
2: Well, if you find something unexpected, then one goes back um, to the uh, history of what was done to the patient and you look and see, could there be a way where that could have been diagnosed in retrospect? So that can help future patients.
1: So we've we've talked briefly here about uh, postmortems or autopsies. There are many subspecialties in pathology. Can you sort of talk us through some of the different directions that pathologists tend to specialize in or areas they tend to specialize in.
2: Right. Well, a pathology residency, the training for a pathologist is generally four years in the United States, four years of general residency. And then another year would be a fellowship in uh, where one can specialize. And there are many, many um, areas to subspecialize. For example, Um, Surgical pathology um, is the most common part of a hospital practice where specimens' biopsies or specimens removed in the operating room are examined by the pathologist and a diagnosis is made. Um, Usually the consideration is whether it's benign or malignant, whether it's cancer or not, or infections or various uh, other entities. So that's the most common thing that pathologists do. Uh, Other areas would include blood banking, um, skin pathology, um, general laboratory issues, um, various subspecializations within the laboratory, such as microbiology, um, chemistry, uh, hematology. Um, You you can specialize in, in virtually any part of the body. One can specialize in breast cancer or hematopathology, which is uh, diseases of the blood, and basically any part of the body. Where you can find a fellowship that you could specialize in.
1: What were some of your areas of uh, specialty?
2: My areas. Um, I did a general fellowship in surgical pathology, and specialized And I had a special interest, although I did not do fellowships in uh, hematopathologies particularly looking at lymphomas, um, diseases of the immune cells, cancers of the immune cells, Um, and also I developed an expertise in breast cancer.
1: And can you tell us uh, something about some of the research that you did?
2: Yeah, uh, what I did was what would be called uh, clinical research, Um, research as... You would know would be divided into basic science and clinical research. Basic science is is looking at the at least in this in pathology is looking at the individual cells and understanding biological um, mechanisms and so forth. Uh, for example, understanding the DNA and the RNA and the mRNA, such as um, comes up with the uh, COVID vaccines. Um, there is also uh, clinical research, which is how to um, improve one's knowledge uh, directly to help the patients. And that's sort of what I was interested in. Um, clinical pathologic studies um, involve um, correlating what I see under the microscope uh, with what happened to the patients. And I had a particular interest in, in, in tumors of the immune cells and looking at different um, things that I could help use to help predict what would happen to the patient, and similar things with breast cancer, um, looking at series of breast cancers and looking at uh, what what would affect the patient and, and nowadays uh, there 's a lot of uh, special stu- so called special studies in pathology where one can examine the tissue not just under the micros under a light microscope but also looking for um, uh, a protein expression of the cancer cells, and also even looking at DNA and RNA. It's very common now for a tumor to be analyzed for DNA, for DNA mutations, for increased RNA expression or DNA expression, and various findings will affect how the patient is treated.
1: In the 30-some years that you practiced uh, uh, as a pathologist, can you tell us a little? I mean, it sounds like it's gotten far more complex and sophisticated in terms of what we're learning and, and the techniques we're using. Can you talk about some of that evolution of the field?
2: Right. Well, um, the microscope has been around for a 100 years or so. And in that respect, the pathologist spends most of his time um Looking through the microscope, which is, you know, not an advanced technology, and 90% of cancers can be diagnosed just by looking under the microscope. Um, more sophisticated techniques um, would be once called immunohistochemistry, where you look at different proteins on the cells using immunologic techniques and different. Tumors have different expressions of protein, so that can help you um, identify um, if there's uncertainty as to where the tumor is coming from. For example, it's common for a tumor to present um, with a metastasis, for example, to a, a lymph node. And then the question is, where is the tumor coming from? So we can use various techniques um, besides the light microscope. Um, to help identify where the tumor is coming from, and it makes a difference uh, in terms of how one how it's treated. For example, a lung cancer would be treated differently than a breast cancer. Um, so, so that's one thing. And then the DNA, it's called in situ hybridization, where one can take the tissue section
1: and um,
2: stain it for the DNA for the DNA mutation. Um, and look at that under the microscope, and that can affect also how the patient's treated. And now the um, the thing is it even determines what drug is used. For example, in breast cancer, if one sees an increased expression of a protein called HER2, then that would lead to the um, therapy with Herceptin, and patients respond very nicely in most cases to this drug. So finding something on pathology has a direct effect as to how the patient's treated and ultimately how the patient um, will do.
1: When uh, I'll get back to that question later, but tell us specifically about some of your research on on lymphomas and on breast cancer, what you were able to learn.
2: Well, I was mostly interested, uh, and by the way, I was in academic pathology for my first 15 years or so. Um, at the Medical College of Virginia, and as an academic pathologist, one does, in addition to teaching and clinical work, um, one does research. And and after 15 years, I switched into a community hospital where I was just focused on on clinical work. But So my first uh, job, so to speak, at MCV, um, I was interested in, in how I can use immunohistochemistry um, to diagnose uh, malignancies, and for example, Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a very a relatively common um, type of lymphoma, type of cancer that affects young people as well as older people. Um, we looked at different markers for how to diagnose it, and we reported um, various uh, papers on that subject. Another tumor that I was interested was of the thymus. The thymus is an immune gland in the upper chest that's important in the development of so-called T-cell immunity. And one can have tumors, just like every organ can give rise to a tumor, so can the thymus. And that was sort of my uh, main focus for several years, was looking at thymic tumors and how to best diagnose them and what factors would um, affect the outcome. So I participated in a series of thymoma, looking at thymoma patients' uh, tumors, and we found that, for example, if the tumor is completely excised, as you would expect, the patient does better. And if the tumor comes close to the, um, to the uh, border, close to the edge of the resection, the patient benefits from radiation therapy, um, so that that was one clinical-pathologic study.
1: Have there been any um, aha moments? Truly, moments when you were in the lab and you saw something that you either had not expected or maybe had expected, but this was definitive proof.
2: Um, not not aha moments such as you might see in a TV show. Most of the research you do, you
1: you have a, an
2: expectation of what's going to happen, and you prove that yes or no, that happens. So, yeah, no, I can't find any aha moments in my, in my uh, memory bank there.
1: So it sounds like being a pathologist uh, requires a lot of patience. Do you say that's one quality that is...
2: Uh, patience important. with a C. No not live patients oh right,
1: exactly patients with the c <laughs> yeah. exactly
2: yeah it's a, it, it, it is it's very for people that enjoy it its it's a very interesting area you're doing work that directly affects the patient outcome you're not interacting with patients, but you're interacting with the uh, healthcare team, including the the surgeons, the oncologists, the radiologists, and so
1: forth. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Tell me about what those interactions were like, both in the academic setting and in the community hospital. When you, uh, How do you interact with your fellow clinicians?
2: Right. In the academic setting, um, there's a layer um, interposed between the pathologist and the attending physician, which are the, the residents, the the all the people that are in training to the various specialties, the surgical residents, the uh, oncology residents, and so forth. So you're mostly dealing with them, but there's a lot of teaching involved for the pathologist. The pathologist will generally go over the cases with the uh, the team, uh, which can be, you know, 10 people, including the residents and the medical students and so forth. And we have, um, in academics, we have microscopes that have... Um, the ability for multiple people to look on at one time, so um that's the inter most of the interactions in the community setting, at least where I was, there was no residencies there were no residencies, so I would directly interact with the uh clin- clinicians, the people taking care of the patients and I found that rewarding. The oncologist would come by every day and look. And I would show him or her the the biopsies or specimens uh, derived from his or her patients and answer questions as best I can as to what would happen and so on and so forth. Make recommendations, does the the, uh, patient need another biopsy, does the patient need surgery and so on and so forth. Um, Also, the various specialists such as infectious disease um, would come by and oftentimes there would be an unusual um, infection that we would have to deal with um, and uh, radiologists sometimes would come by and, and want to correlate their findings with my findings um, so and surgeons of course want to know if they got all the tumor out so margins for example are very important for a surgical procedure Does the tumor extend to the margin of resection? if it does then the patient may need more surgery If it's close to the margin, the patient may need radiation therapy. Um, So issues like that. Some
1: of those questions Uh, actually come up intraoperatively. Correct? I'm thinking about Mohs surgery, which is a what dermatologists do uh, often for melanomas and basal cells, where they will take uh, they will wait for the pathologist to give them uh, the uh, go ahead. Uh, whether or not they need to do any further dissection and other right. such surgeons.
2: It's called a, we call it a frozen section where um, the surgeon gives us the tumor and we can freeze it. And by freezing it, it enables us to cut a section. Usually for the routine biopsy, the tissue would have to fix it, so called fixation in formalin, which hardens the tissue and enables you to cut a section. The tissue has to be hard in order to get a section to look at under the microscope. So a frozen section, you don't have to wait for the tissue to fix it. You can freeze it and accomplish the same thing as for fixation. However, the um, the morphology it doesn't look as good under the microscope. Um, there's artifacts with the freezing that make it more difficult um, or suboptimal for diagnosis. Um, but for the purposes of... Does the tumor extend to the margin of resection? The frozen section is useful.
1: When and you have a, a you know that the uh, the patient's are on the table, the operated operation is already underway. You have everyone sort of waiting for your results. That must be a little bit of a different kind of pressured feeling than than doing the the subsequent hard right. uh, sections.
2: Yes, that is the one time. Uh, where the pathologist is under pressure, usually you know you can look at your slides uh, on a relatively leisurely pace. But if you're um, dealing with a patient under the uh, under anesthesia um, and the surgeon is waiting for you to tell him what to do, um, it can become quite
1: tense. How do you deal with that kind of pressure? How did you deal when you were in our last minute before our break? How did you deal with that kind of pressure?
2: Um, you just. Do the best you can.
1: <laughs> uh, you
2: you, um, you just you know put your head down and, and do the work.
1: Yeah, and imagine the years of uh, as the years went by and you got more and more experience. I don't know if it got easier, but it it must have at least given you some reassurance that uh, that you have had the skills and background knowledge to to do your best, as you said.
2: Right. Usually under frozen section, it's it's not difficult. Usually it's straightforward. So it's not that bad.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to be back in the second half. We're at 802-244-1777. My guest is Dr. Michael Kornstein. If you have any questions about what happens, what pathologists do and, uh, or any other general medical questions, give us a call. Second half. We'll be back. With the second half of healthcare today, we have Dr. Michael Kornstein on the line with us, a longtime pathologist from Richmond, Virginia. So, uh, Dr. Kornstein, you mentioned one of the number of different subspecialties in, path, in pathology. One of them is, um, you mentioned blood banking, uh, which is a very important, very complex area. Can you talk a little bit about the role pathologists take in blood banking? Two
2: zero two. that's better. Yeah. Wait, can I hear? Yeah, I can you hear there?
1: you now. Thank you. Okay. We were going to yeah. talk about a little bit about blood banking and 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 the role yeah. pathologists take.
2: Yeah, blood blood the the yeah, pathologist in a uh, community hospital. Part of that job is to oversee the laboratory provide medical direction for the laboratory, and one of the parts of the hospital laboratory is the blood bank, and the blood bank is is very unique um, in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's basically providing a drug um, to the uh, patient, uh, uh, the unit of blood, and it's very critical that the blood is of the right type to infuse into the patient, and um, there are a lot of blood types, and what happens is that if people are are infused with the wrong blood type, that can be very serious, even uh, fatal. So it's incumbent upon the blood bank to correctly identify the blood type. And then the other part of it is identifying antibodies. When a patient um, develops antibodies to the blood, um, the blood bank has to identify the antibodies and then provide blood that would be compatible with the patient. Um, and this is a very big job, and there are many different types of antibodies that can be um, developed against the blood. So it frequently um, it, it is an issue if the patient uh, has surgery scheduled and the blood that's available available. Is not of the type that's needed, uh, then the surgery may have to be postponed, or if the surgery is very critical, then the patient may have to get blood that's not entirely compatible, or what you what, what you would say would be the least incompatible blood um, and it's done you know in a very in most hospitals, in a very traditional way in test tubes and looking for um, antigen antibody. Uh, interactions. Um, the technologists is very critical um, to the functioning of the blood bank. Another issue that comes up with the blood bank is a shortage of blood. Very commonly, I don't know about in Vermont, but down here it's very common to have a shortage of platelets or a shortage of whole blood and then you have to uh, contact the various people that have ordered the blood and tell them that we just don't have the blood available. And that can also be
1: very, um, we certainly do get stressful. run into those problems here in Vermont at times. And that's why we always encourage people who, who would like to, to please consider donating blood or platelets because, uh, you will can definitely save a life. No question about it. Um, patients will often a- ask, and it's a very reasonable question if they're, uh, being offered or recommended to have a transfusion. What are my chances of getting some disease from this blood such as HIV for example or hepatitis or or other such malaria or other such bloodborne diseases what 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 should they be told
2: well of course this was a major disaster in the early days of the HIV epidemic when it was discovered that blood would transmit HIV and at that time there was no way to identify the HIV in the blood so um, many people uh succumbed to the uh, HIV that had been transfused.
1: We should mention Arthur Ashe from Richmond, Virginia, being right, one, of the one of the more prominent. Arthur Ashe one
2: of yep. the Also, hemophiliacs, yep. um, you know, were very hard hit by this. Um, and now, of course, we screen the blood for HIV um, and hepatitis and various other. Um, infectious diseases. So right now, we believe the blood is as safe as can be, but there's always a risk of infection whenever you give blood. But the the indication should be such that it is more important to get the blood. Um, It it outweighs the risk, so to speak, uh, to get the blood. And nowadays, we are transfusing blood for lower and lower uh, let me rephrase that. The the criteria to give a transfusion has changed a lot in the last several years. Now you need a lower hemoglobin before you get uh, a transfusion.
1: You mentioned that in blood banking, for example, the technologist in the lab is very important, and I think that's probably true across the labs, um, that these are highly trained uh, people in your lab. They're not the physicians in the lab, but they are highly trained at what they do. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that. And also, given the fact that uh, so many areas of, of the hospital medicine and, and community medicine are now look, are short of employees, has that been an issue as far as you know in the community labs and in the uh, hospital lab?
2: Uh, yes. The technologists in the lab is, is critical, of course. They do they actually carry out the procedures. And the laboratory is mostly nowadays um, r- uh, consisting of, of instruments. The instruments run the chemistries and the, the microbiology and, and hematology and so on and so forth. But you need people to run the instruments, and you need the people that are trained to do so. And the technologists have uh, had the um, training and licensing uh, to do so, and there there is a shortage. It's very <coughs> there is a shortage, a critical shortage of uh, technologists at at this time.
1: Well, it's a it's a field that is going to simply, I would think, continue to grow. So, if people are listening and are interested in getting. Into the medical field, but perhaps don't want to spend seven or eight years to go through medical school and residency, or or other such pathways. Uh, or if they're fascinated by research, and and uh, as you've been talking about, becoming a medical technologist is sounds like a pretty good good way to go.
2: Yeah, I, I would encourage people um, that have any interest to to uh, investigate that area.
1: You mentioned that um, you have uh we talked about communicating with with the clinicians and and I'm you know communicating with other uh, pathologists um one of the uh in the last 2 years conf- in person conferences have essentially been uh wiped away due to covid um, how important was it to go to conferences to see other pathologists, to go to uh, to read about their research and per, uh, talk about it with them in person, and how much of this do you think will change and can be done now in terms of uh, distant uh, conferences?
2: Right. There are different uh, national meetings, international and national meetings, um, that uh, pathologists go to. Of course, they're required to have a certain amount of continuing medical education, And some of that can be achieved by going to national meetings. There are also state societies, state pathology societies that have CME um, offerings. Um, So now, or the last year or two, many of these, I think all of these meetings essentially have gone on to a a virtual uh, format, which of course is, is less desirable in that you don't have the contact Um, with people, et cetera. Um, So uh, we're hoping that this will come back. I think um, they're scheduling now for the spring and the fall for for meetings uh, in person. Uh, Another area within the hospital are all the meetings that go on. Um, For example, um, at our hospital, all the breast cancer patients would be reviewed at a weekly meeting with the oncologist, the radiation therapist, um, the radiologist, the pathologist, and um, other personnel involved in the care of breast cancer patients. And all the studies would, would be reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. So these meetings also could no longer happen uh, because we could not have that many people in a room and so forth. Um, so these were all done virtually. Um, and, again, that was suboptimal. But I think gradually these meetings are coming back.
1: You know, we're, we're reminded that that I believe the two scientists that uh, first uh, came together to uh, talk about the mRNA COVID vaccine uh, sort of met at a conference, at a lunch break at a conference. Um, and who knows what would have happened if they had not been able to literally bump into each other and start talking like that. Uh-huh. So I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that the person-to-person contacts are, are and hopefully will remain important um, do you ever follow up or what kind of follow up did you used to have on patients? I mean you mentioned that you may not see the patient in person, but clearly you you must have been interested in in their in their course and what kind of follow up did you personally you know have in terms of uh, patient follow up
2: well, first of all, if the patient has a, for example a breast biopsy. Um, then the uh, subsequent uh, excision of the tumor uh, would usually come to the same place that the biopsy was done, the same hospital system. So one would be able to find, that if you make a diagnosis on the biopsy, that the diagnosis is confirmed on the lumpectomy, for example. And then the other thing would be if <clears throat> to review um, uh, in a series of patients Um, such as you would do in a clinical pathologic study where you look at what happens to the patient over time. You try to get, you know, disease-free survival and so on and so forth, so you get feedback there that way. But also one also hears about if you um, make a diagnosis, the the, um, surgeon or clinician will often come tell you what happened to the patient. So there are various ways that you find out. And if you do make a mistake, you're sure to hear about it.
1: There are, speaking mistakes, there there are sort of benchmark uh, levels of mistakes. I mean, because no one is perfect, no department is perfect, but there are benchmarks, aren't there, about the percentage of uh, errors that would not necessarily be acceptable, but would be – I'm not sure what the word would be, but would be understandable.
2: I think the words would be standard of care. Standard of care, Uh, yeah. If you've met the standard of care, um, that's acceptable. If you're not meeting the standard of care, that is not acceptable. And um,
1: For example, let's talk about dermatopathology and diagnosis melanoma. What would be the standard of care misdiagnosis? It, uh,
2: well, it, again, unfortunately, it's somewhat subjective and often yeah. decided in a courtroom. Um, melanoma is one of the more difficult diagnoses to make. Uh, for the pathologist, the difference between a nevus, a so-called birthmark, and a melanoma sometimes can be very uh, hard, hard to discern. Um, so it's up, and it, these people usually have a fellowship in dermatopathology, where melanoma is a major um, concern. So um, if the pathologist, one of the, in fact the most common error that a pathologist makes is. The underdiagnosis or overdiagnosis of melanoma. Um, so, if that happens, there's often a, a lawsuit, and then the court decides whether the standard of care was met. Um, and, and again, that, that that's a, a legal issue.
1: You know, we 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 talk talk about this in radiology and also in pathology about um, concordance. For example, if you give the same sample to two or three or ten pathologists, pathologists—what, how much concordance, how much agreement there would be, independent agreement there would be on their findings. Um, how important is that?
2: Yeah, the most famous example in pathology, um, it was in the newspapers um, several years ago, was a study that gave um I think 10 different breast uh, biopsies to 10 different experts in breast pathology and uh, concerning a certain type of cancer called ductal carcinoma in situ, which is sort of a, which is a non-invasive cancer, uh, but can be mimicked by benign breast disease. And there was remarkable disagreement among the 10 breast experts as to whether the biopsy showed uh, ductal carcinoma in situ or just benign changes. So that led to a um, series of, of conferences and papers that tried to make it a more objective, uh, to define the criteria more objectively. Well, but, yeah, um, this is, one should get the same diagnosis whether you're in Vermont or Virginia, and I think 99% of the time that would be the case.
1: Are you saying 99% concordance in general?
2: Uh, in general, yes.
1: Well, that's the a pretty error, high error percentage.
2: Right, should be 1% or so.
1: Okay. Well, it brings up another question I wanted to ask you. There are, um, just as in radiology, there are new computer algorithms and new computer programs coming online which purport to uh, take some of the subjectivity out of the Of the uh, diagnostic uh, process and give more standardized uh, results. Um, Can you give us some examples of how this has impacted pathology at this point and what you anticipate in the future?
2: Uh, I just read very recently of a grant um, I think it was to the University of Michigan to develop artificial intelligence uh, uh, for the um, interpretation of uh, Pathology specimens, but up to now, I mean, there are several papers on that issue. But there's minimal um, involvement of the computers in terms of making a diagnosis. Um, There's there are uh, so-called image analysis systems which are used in some uh, systems for the interpretation of special studies, such as the immunohistochemistry or DNA analysis. That we talked about before, um, the image analysis can quantitate the expression of proteins or DNA um, better than the human eye can qualitate it. Whether that's of any advantage clinically is is subject to discussion.
1: I think um, about immunop- I think about the hemopathology, where I've seen expert hemopathologists such as yourself or others be able to look at a slide and see one abnormal or two abnormal cells in a starry night pattern of, of cells, and yet it's not easy. And could a, could a artificial intelligence someday do that as well or better?
2: Absolutely. And, and as in radiology, I think the artificial intelligence helps the interpreter um, see things that he or she might have missed Um But, again, I think there will be a human element in there as
1: well. Speaking of human element, let me backtrack for a minute. I talked about, uh, you know, interactions with your colleagues uh, at conferences. But um, in terms of pathology in other countries, uh, including developing countries, for example, perhaps in Africa or parts of Asia or South Asia, um, where does does pathology stand? I mean – are there labs meet the standard of care, for example, in the United States? Is there a, a common uh, denominator?
2: Yeah well, obviously the third world does not have the resources that we have here. Um, there are we have the College of American Pathologists in the, which is in the United States uh, an organization of pathologists does inspect laboratories uh, in the US and they have an international, division as well. That inspects labs in other countries. So uh, other areas do have the same um, criteria for um, uh, performance that we might have here. Um, but in terms of Africa and, and other areas, uh, I'm just not sure. I, I think know one of the that, challenges is point yeah. of
1: service where you uh, may be less expensive equipment but that can give answers quickly. Um uh, and, right. and can, be, can be transported more easily out from a, a, main, a central medical center.
2: Right. Yes. Um, uh, another area that might be more minimal to that that we haven't touched on yet is psychology. Um, um, psychology not only involves the pap smears where you're looking at individual cells, but also, I think I did mention this at the beginning, so-called fine needle aspirate, where you ask great cells out of a tumor and look at it on the slide, that just takes a, you know a few minutes and very little resources.
1: Could that be beamed, for example, that image to a pathologist from afar sitting in front of a computer somewhere else?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that virtual pathology virtual. Um, also is happening in the United States where uh, underserved areas... Uh, Can be covered by a pathologist. You know,
1: were you involved with that uh, in uh, in uh, Richmond, in Virginia?
2: Um, No, not directly. But I I know that there was um, uh, a setup at the Veterans Hospital, where one Veterans Hospital would beam the images to a central Veterans Hospital um, for pathology services.
1: Do you have any colleagues that you're in contact with in Ukraine, or have been in contact? Uh, No, no. Well, I know, uh, recently you and your wife visited, uh, uh, Vermont. We're up in Stowe uh, doing some cross-country skiing. Um, we were glad to have you in the state. You had picked a good week to come as, as I recall. Um, you have now some, obviously a lot more a lot more time uh, having retired what made you decide I mean you're, you're a pretty young guy what made you reti- decide to retire now and, and what are your interests now
2: well I, I was 65 oh yeah I was 65 when I retired so I thought it was time and um, there were issues at the hospital that I was at that led me to retire um, but you know, we have uh, my wife and I have both volunteered giving uh, COVID um, injection, COVID vaccines, um, and you know, otherwise we keep busy with family and friends and so forth.
1: The um, what would you say to a, a young person who's thinking about going into? Path- we have about two minutes left, but I'm wondering what Bye. what would you say to a young person who was trying to decide whether or not to go into pathology?
2: Well, uh, try to, um, if you can, uh, make contact with a local pathologist. Also look at the website for the College of American Pathologists, get an idea of of what pathologists do. Um, You know, it's a fascinating area, and um, for medical students going through, you know, you can talk to the local pathologist or the pathologist at the medical school that you're at. and uh I think I would encourage everybody to do a clinical year though yeah. to, to get the idea of what as you, you know,
1: did at at chop, yeah. at, uh, CHOP. Yeah. what yeah. what what is in the last minute or so what has been the s- special experiences and, and joy that you've taken from your profession
2: Oh every once in a while patients will um you know thank me and and say that I saved their life or whatever and um I think that that is the most, um, you know, reassuring thing.
1: Can, uh, can you remember one instance like that?
2: Well, Without mentioning patient, a name, obviously. One, one patient um, had a biopsy that was interpreted as lymphoma, or malignancy of the, of the immune cells, and it was sent to me in consultation, and it was, in fact, a benign lesion, and she credits me with saving her life. Uh, somebody else... Uh, I went the other way it was initially called benign and sent to me and, and it was malignant and uh, she had chemotherapy and is doing well
1: well I want to thank you for all of your years and for sharing your experiences with us today Dr. Michael Kornstein from Richmond, Virginia um, thank you Mike
2: no nope, nope, pleasure to do it
1: We will be back next week. We hope to be talking then about uh, GI cancers with one of the nation's experts. Till then, please be careful in this storm tomorrow. Be safe, be kind to yourselves, and please be kind to others.
0: Today, with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary residents, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kenny Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com. employee-owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch.
2: NorthfieldPharmacy.com.
1: The music for this program was written and produced by Armin
2: Bayajan.